大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, everybody. I am Claudia Wessling. I'm head of communications at Mercator Institute for China Studies, and、um, I'm very pleased to have Barbara Finnemo with me here. She's the Asia Director of the National Resources Defense Council, based in the United States. Very warm welcome again. Barbara has founded this program, which is very active in China, focusing on climate, clean energy, environmental protection, and urban solutions in China. Before I talk too much about that, Barbara, can you tell me a little bit what exactly you're doing? Yes, and let me begin by saying thank you for inviting me to join you today. Like Chris Barrett said this morning, I too feel like a climate policy refugee. <laughs> from the United States, and so it's just a real pleasure. I really enjoyed all the discussion this morning. And yes, NRDC, which is Natural Resources Defense Council, not、uh, NDRC, for <laughs> which we often get confused、uh, in China. We've been working in China for over 20 years now. We were the first、uh, international NGO to begin a clean energy program in China, and we worked. For many years, really bringing some leading concepts from around the world to China, like energy efficiency, like green buildings, and then worked on the ground to help adapt them to Chinese conditions. And we now have 40 people in our office in Beijing. But just very briefly, I want to mention one of the very exciting projects we've been working on for the last three years, which is led by my colleague here, Dr. Yang Fuchang. Is to coordinate a group of over 20 thought leaders in China from leading research institutes, industry associations, academies, including Dr. Zhang Kejun, who, of course, a leading thought leader in China, is a key member of this group. But we started about three years ago to really put together detailed analysis and recommendations for how China could reduce its coal consumption through a cap. On, on coal consumption, and didn't just come up with a number, but really had the backup research to follow up onto what that would mean in terms of reduced health impacts, greater green jobs. What would be the impact on CO2 emissions, and most important, on air pollution? And and I'm just delighted to say that in the 13th five-year plan, China did adopt a mandatory cap、uh, for the first time on the percentage of coal. In China's energy mix by 2020, so that is、uh, just one example of the work that we're doing, working very closely with those who are really advising the government on how to transition to a low-carbon economy.、Um, thank you. Yeah, I, I hope we have the opportunity to talk a bit more about your hands-on experience in the country. But let me first get back to the topic we've chosen for our little discussion, which is. A very small topic. We want to try to answer the question: Who will be the key players in fighting climate change in the future? And one of the key players has now kind of really changed、uh, its policy. I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the United States. Donald Trump announcing the withdrawal of, from the Paris Agreement on the beginning of June. Barbara, how was this received in the U.S.? Well, of course, as you know, it was devastating news to all of us who care about the future of the planet and the future of our country. Trump's campaign pledge was to make America great again, and we're afraid with this and many of his other actions, he's gone in the absolute opposite direction. 
But the good news, as many people have mentioned this morning, is, is quite remarkable to me. It's the extent to which Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement has catalyzed public interest, attention, and action by so many mayors, governors, business leaders, investors, and citizens. And not just making their own pledges, which we saw, of course, before, but working together. We now have almost a plethora of new initiatives from the US Climate Alliance to the We're Still In Coalition I heard mentioned today. NRDC did one for individual citizens called I'm Still In, and we have people signing up daily. This has been somewhat of a silver lining uh, to the very bad news of Trump's withdrawal from the agreement. So this means the fight against climate change or the push for environmental protection is not dead in the US. There are still many initiatives on different levels, which is good, but what do you think? Has this still somehow damaged the US's standing in international politics? Well, absolutely, absolutely it has. But I think the message I want to get across to all of you who may not be following this on a daily basis like I am, is that Trump's power to make change in this area and in many others is not as strong as you may think. I mean, number one, he cannot just erase regulations such as the Clean Power Plan with a stroke of his pen, with an executive order, because under American law, the government must follow the same regulatory process that it did to enact these regulations in the first place. And this is something that Trump doesn't understand, but the courts do. So NRDC, which was formed by a group of lawyers to sue polluters, has really beefed up our litigation arm. I'll give you one example. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, Trump decided to erase the new regulations requiring capture of methane from the oil and gas industry. Very important climate regulations. Well, he just can't do that. So NRDC brought suit against the Trump administration, and they knew it was so blatantly illegal, they did not even answer our complaint. Instead, once they received it, they reinstated the regulations. This shows what shaky ground Trump is on. Secondly, despite the fact that Trump's proposed budget for the federal government slashes funding to every climate initiative and the EPA and the State Department and all the efficiency and clean energy programs of the Department of Energy, Trump is not, does not have final say over the U.S. budget, thankfully. That's up to the U.S. Congress. And we're already seeing, even among the Republican senators and congressmen, that they're concerned about certain pet projects in their districts. Um, for example, one area uh, that has been very promising is the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, um, which is a joint program co-funded by both countries and run out of several national labs. Well, the congressmen in those national labs, they kind of like this program. And so there's a chance that that way be continued to be funding. The other thing to remember is state environmental laws are still in effect. And also that a lot of the, um, of the action to date 
in the United States on climate has taken place at the local, state, and city level because we don't have national climate policy in the first place. So that we expect to accelerate as time goes on. So there is a lot of activity pro the fighting against climate change, but still one could imagine that uh, things are maybe being slowed down by all yes. these uh, litigations and actions in court and... You have to kind of fight for what you want to do. We are fighting every day. Yes, okay. of course, of mm. course. Uh, if Trump is successful in, in uh, eliminating funding for research and innovation, that's going to have impacts not just in the United States, but around the world. And even though states are moving ahead on their own, you know, having the U.S. behind it, of course, is having an important impact. But one of the things that brightens my day is the fact that even though Trump is trying to revive the coal industry in the United States, the utilities aren't listening. They have a much longer planning horizon, as you know. They've been working on reducing their carbon for a decade. They're hesitant to change position for a new president who may not be there one term, may not even make it to one term. And plus, of course, the economics, as we, as we heard about. In fact, coal consumption in the U.S. has been dropping dramatically. And uh, from 50% in 2008 to 33% now of the total energy mix. And just, just uh, the other day, I heard that the largest coal plant in the western United States, which is on a Native American re reservation, is going to close down. Um, and now they got an extension for two years because the Native Americans see it as a major source of employment, but the economics just aren't there anymore. And even CCS, which Trump has touted as the solution. CCS, excuse oh, me. Oh, so, sorry, carbon capture and sequestration. The Southern Company, which is one of the largest utilities in the United States, just announced that they're not going to continue with their flagship carbon capture and sequestration project. It's just too expensive. So the economy is moving on despite Trump, one might say. Let me take this to a more global level. Yeah. Do you think this troublesome situation in the US might change the dynamics of the fight against climate change on a global level? And if yes, to what extent? And what is to do yes, about that? Yes, so we've got states, as you know, like California, uh, rushing to fill in the breach. And so I was in Beijing a couple of weeks ago when Jerry Brown, the governor, was there. And it was very interesting to me that he got an audience, a meeting, with President Xi Jinping when the Secretary of Energy of the United States, Rick Perry, didn't. It's just very telling. But it's important to understand that under the U.S. Constitution, states like California cannot participate officially in international climate negotiations. So unfortunately for us, because I think California, uh, the sixth largest economy in the world, if it were a country on its own, is very much the leader in the U.S. and is continuing to fight. Yeah, that might be difficult to change, to have California <laughs> <I> joining. <doubt> <laughs> anyway, let's, let's look at China. Since Trump uh, announced this uh, withdrawal, China has been doing quite the contrary. Politicians come to Germany stressing they want to cooperate on climate issues, on innovation in resource-friendly energies. What motivates China to act this way? 
Yes, China has evolved its climate position over the years. And of course, one of the reasons that we even have a Paris Agreement is that it leaves it up to each country to decide what it can do in its own best interests. And of course, that's why I think China and so many countries have rushed to declare that they will continue to fulfill their Paris pledges regardless of what the United States does. It's still nonetheless a real lost opportunity because as we know, it was that partnership between the United States and China, the world's two largest emitters, that really did uh, provide the momentum that led to the Paris Agreement and, and that cooperation between the two countries on climate has been uh, accelerating in recent years. So that is a real loss. But I think China, of course, recognizes that it's in its own best interest to transition to a low-carbon economy, reduce its reliance on coal, and also to really take the lead in the clean energy transition. You have a lot of experience on the ground in China. What would you say? How far has China gotten to fulfill the pledges it made in the Paris Agreement? Well, China is on track to meet and even exceed its pledges made in Paris, which include a whole range of things. We all know about the uh, peaking its CO2 emissions by 2030 or even sooner. I think the even sooner is what we're going to see. And But it also includes uh, having one-fifth of its energy come from non-fossil fuel by 2030, reducing its carbon intensity by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030, increasing forest coverage, etc. It is on track in all of these areas. And as you know, the Paris Agreement does require every country to try to up its ambition in the next phase in 2020. And I think China is very well positioned to do that, to strengthen its pledges because it's already uh, well on its way. As you may know, and we've seen the graphs here today, China's coal consumption has been dropping for the last three years in a row. And so if China were to strengthen its ambition, I know China doesn't want to be the only leader on climate change. You know, there's a saying in China that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. China wants to act in partnership with other countries such as Germany and the EU, which is why this conference today is so important. But China can lead, there's many dimensions of climate leadership, and one is leading by example. And I think if China were indeed to strengthen its ambition in its Paris climate pledges in the next phase, that would be a very strong signal to other countries. I would like to get back to the motives. What motivates China? Is it to secure itself an important role on the global scale, or are there domestic factors involved? And if so, which factors are that? I think it's a combination of the above. I'm not going to put them in order, but China's serious air pollution cannot be tackled without reducing its coal consumption. Coal is also the leading contributor to China's CO2 emissions. But more beyond that, China recognizes that to avoid the middle income trap, to continue on a course of sustainable economic growth, it has to move away from an economy that is based primarily on high polluting, heavy emitting, fossil fuel powered industry towards a more service economy. And, and the government has said it wants to have maybe lower levels of economic growth, but better quality 
economic growth. And it sees this as one way to achieve those economic goals. And thirdly, China is really taking the lead, not just domestically, where it leads the world in wind and solar installed capacity. And I'm sorry about that because it just overtook Germany <laughs> last year. But that's a good kind of race. But it leads the world not only in domestic installed capacity and in investment in renewable energy, but also increasingly in financing renewable energy around the world. $32 billion uh, last year alone. Now, of course, we heard a lot of talk today, earlier today, about investments in coal plants. And so that's another form of climate leadership. The Paris Agreement doesn't require countries to pledge anything regarding their financing overseas. But, but we heard some good suggestions this morning on how that could happen. And one of the things our coal cap project, Dr. Yang Fu Chang and his team, are working on is trying to set up standards for that kind of overseas investment in China in such a way that it would help other countries achieve their Paris pledges and even go beyond them to help achieve a 1.5 degree target. So we don't have a clear picture here. We have, on the one hand, China is really setting examples in installing renewable energy techniques at home. On this, at the same time, they are exporting coal-fired plants and technologies abroad. And there's a lot of work to do on that, I guess. I don't want to suggest that China will be the key player in fighting climate change, but to what extent could China or maybe Germany and China together f fill the gap that the U.S. has left in that uh, Well, I'm very regard. heartened by a lot of the suggestions that have been made today about how China and Germany can cooperate in moving forward, and we'll hear more this afternoon on our panel on the ETS system. But I do think it's very important to remember that China, just like every country, faces domestic challenges. It's not easy. This transition to a low-carbon economy, especially for a country as large as China and so dependent on fossil fuels right now, it's not easy. Even the renewable energy, as we know, is suffers an average of uh, 15% of it is curtailed or wasted because of severe mm -hmm. policy, ingrained policy mechanisms that still favor coal, and, and as well as practical problems on how to get that renewable energy to the demand centers where it's needed. So this is, <laughs> you know, it's not something that China can just take on overnight. Oh, I'll, you know, uh, assume the mantle from the United States, but it's certainly working in that direction. Well, thank you, Barbara. So my takeaway from this discussion would be, it is not so important to answer the question who the key player will be, but to continue working on the ground and in a, on a small level, and that will maybe bring more progress than asking the question who will replace the U.S. in these big agreements. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>